0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Ruben Rosario Rodriguez, who has written Theological Fragments, Confessing What We Know and Cannot Know About an Infinite God, with Westminster John Knox Press. Um, In this conversation, he is Professor of Systematic Theology at St. Louis University, um, and This book actually comes out of conversations that he has had with his students uh, over the last several years, um, teaching Intro to Theology and other Theological Studies classes at St. Louis University, Um, and it's also part of, I think, his heart and desire to connect uh, with a generation of students who don't seem to have the same concerns uh, that maybe previous generations did. Um, And so it was a pleasure to get to to talk with him, uh, to hear a little bit more um, about stuff that he thinks uh, is going to be very helpful and beneficial, uh, maybe even to some of those nuns, uh, as they're sometimes called, uh, those who profess no uh, religious commitments, but still feel some spirituality. Um, and so this book is, in a way, kind of addressed uh, to them. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk a little bit about audience. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just a very uh, fruitful conversation. appreciate Dr. Uh, Rosario uh, coming on to talk with me. Um we have a few other um, conversations coming up, one with K.J. Drake, uh, one with um, Emily Dummler-Winkler, um, and we'll have a few more things throughout the summer. So thank you so much for listening. Here's my conversation with Dr. Rosario. I'm uh, Chad Kim, host of History of Christian Theology. Today we have uh, Dr. Ruben Rosario Rodriguez, um, and he has uh, just written another work. Was this your fourth or fifth, uh, fifth. book? fifth yeah yeah. so uh i i edit i think i did an index on one as a grad student yeah um and that was like the the dogmatics after babel i think yeah Yeah, Um, which was
1: the the kind of uh (laughs) there you go this is kind of in many ways a sequel to this (laughs) yeah yeah
0: yeah, and, and then, but then you've done other works on, uh, you did sort of a comparative theology of martyrdom, which I, I remember reading through as well, uh, yeah. way back when, maybe also when I was a grad student, or maybe yeah. a TA or something, I can't remember for you, um, so you've done a lot of work, but this one, as you were saying, is is sort of um, trying to come to terms with uh, your long career of teaching theology, um, and and I guess like one, one way that you were kind of framing that, you know, I, I try to tell my students, um, and I'm just... Sort of learning how, uh, how to teach yeah. uh, theology, um, but I, you know, I try to talk about theology as dialogue, and so I guess some of this book arises out of that that kind of dialogue, the feedback that you were getting from your students.
1: Exactly, and I think what what changed for me as the teacher is that uh, I could no longer assume either a base of the most simple knowledge of, of the Bible. You know, when I started here, most of our my students and theological foundations had had at the very least done Catholic schools through eighth grade. Many of them came from Catholic prep schools. You know, nineteen years later, Saint Louis University is only fifty percent Catholic, and of those, um, very few are coming from Catholic prep schools. So it's it's a different world. Yeah, and and, and not not saying that. Um, that's the only way people have the, the kind of base knowledge to engage theology. But what has become more and more obvious is that many of them have made a judgment about Christianity with very little experience or knowledge of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So then it's, it's a doubly difficult task. Not only am I having to introduce materials they've never studied and, and have no interest in, but then i have to overcome certain prejudices and judgments they've made about the christian religion with without having all the facts yeah yeah
0: yeah, well, and one thing I, as I was reading, I was thinking of some of my experience teaching, and uh, surprisingly, when you get to sort of, um, I I, ta- I talk about theology, uh, you know, uh, as sort of the contemplative and active life. Sometimes mm-hmm. I use that framing, and you know, it used to be that I I feel like you know students understood that like used to think of theology just as contemplative, and they didn't really want to think about the active part. But yeah. I feel like our students or the students that I've encountered, they're like w- when I tell them that you. know, Christianity is concerned about ecology, or Christianity is concerned, you know, the, about the environment, or Christianity yeah. is concerned about, uh, like how women have suffered in these sorts of questions, or or racial issues. Uh, when I say that the theology is concerned about that, you know, they take that. They're like, well, yeah, well for sure." And I used to think that would be the hardest sell was to think <laughs> about the ethics or something.
1: Yeah, exactly, because um, I think. Definitely my generation, I'm not sure about yours, but, but we, we were formed, especially as Protestants, um, in a uh, kind of a window that looked at the world and, and, and Christianity within that world as uh, transcendent, as something given from, from, from up above, to be blunt about it, and, and that because it wholly depended on grace— Um, we didn't want to insert ourselves in it on Mm. our moral uh, contribution to that faith. Right. And, and so what I think, well, in many ways, that's the struggle Bart is dealing with, Uh, you know, for Bart, you know, theology is ethics Mm. ultimately that, you know, he structured his dogmatics that, that there is a, a big, so what, and then a consequence. And, and I think, even though he cites Luther a lot, in the end, he's closer to Calvin and Calvin's third use of the law mm. um, than than he is um, uh, Luther's more. Uh, um, well, b- b- it's a passive spirituality. It's a spirituality, but it's one that uh, the believer is always uh, the kind of the receptor, and 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 I think um, Bart. While while always emphasizing God as holy other, um, in the end, also wants to make a claim about that that it's in this context we call church that God is manifest in the world, yeah, and God is real, and there's something objective there,
0: yeah yeah so it 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 is funny so i think you know one kind of thing i was thinking through with this book and again just kind of thinking about teaching theology is how to um yeah that word transcendent um mm-hmm. it's almost a word without meaning um for a lot of of students yeah. like it it it's something that like when i try to um, you know, talk about, you know, God's action. So we go through Exodus and we we talk about Absalom Jones uh, Thanksgiving sermon or something or, you know, try to show how uh, early um, African-American Christians saw the the movement of God and the tra- it's part of yeah. that sort of God. it. You know, being transcendent over the imminent domain, and being you know not just what the here and now, but God being you know trying to reach up and understand God uh, as beyond us, and that was like that. Sometimes that's hard uh, for them to even like wrap their minds around. They don't even want to think in those kind of categories,
1: and, and that's one of the reasons that that I engage the natural sciences in this book. Um, you know, we, we teach at an institution where seventy five percent of our students. Are majoring in some aspect of the life sciences or the medical profession, and with it comes a certain worldview, a certain reliance, right, on on empirical verification, and and really a certain reduction of that which we can speak about as knowledge and certainty,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? But but if you push back. Um, and, and students don't like it sometimes when you push back, but, but if, if, you know, do they really view the world as deterministic and reductionist as their commitment to this scientific method? And you find that in the things they care about most and are most passionate about, most of them don't. Yeah. That suddenly the, the laws of science don't apply when it comes to romantic love or when it <laughs> comes to, uh, aesthetic values you know what what music i like what clothes i wear what you know and so so to me that then becomes an opening for a conversation into transcendence yeah. into recognizing that in in the modern world science has been a very effective and practical approach to understanding the cosmos but by its very nature it's reductionist and and it is successful in telling us how things happen, mm-hmm. but not very useful as to why. <laughs> That's right. Right? And, and so the question becomes, you know, we as human beings, we developed science. It didn't fall. Uh-huh. You know, it is a human rationality. And so uh, we need to, to start with certain facts. And one of the facts is from a, an evolutionary cognitive and neurological perspective, a Stone Age human from the Neolithic era and a modern day human are the same. Mm -hmm. We have the same capacity for knowledge, for intelligence. Right. And some could argue, uh, before we had this vast mass of culture learning and history, right. You know, it took real genius to, you know, observe something in nature. Lightning hits that suddenly there's fire, you know, and, and put these things together and then, you know, um, so, so we need to get over ourselves on this idea that somehow we as modern people are more intelligent, know more, mm-hmm. etc. And once we, we overcome some of those obstacles, then, then we can tap into the fact that theology and the natural sciences are all dealing with the same phenomena mm-hmm. and the same sense of awe and wonder and just coming at it from different directions.
0: Yeah, that, yeah. There's a kind of humility about our own place in in this uh, uh, it, world. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so I often bring in short readings from from people who are, you know, physicists or or chemists who who have, in studying the complexity of of the cosmos, returned to faith. You mm-hmm. know, um, and rather than spending their whole time, which is what many fundamentalists try to do. In in bringing this biblical narrative into complete agreement with this scientific narrative, you live with that discomfort because you don't read the Bible to figure out, uh, you know, the Krebs cycle in in photosynthesis, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, I I used to teach uh, eighth grade catechism class many years ago. And and I, you know, uh, you want to bake a cake, you read a cookbook. You want to tear apart a carburetor, and I'm dating myself, cars don't have carburetors (laughs) anymore, Uh, um, and and put it back together, you get the technical manual from the car manufacturer. Um, When you read the Bible, you're not reading it for the kinds of of answers that uh, an evolutionary biologist wants about the origin of human life. Yeah. When you read the Bible, though, what you're getting is... um, the claim that that the universe, in its vast complexity, uh, is created, and it is ultimately good. Yeah, and then you start from there.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's you know that that's a great. Uh, that's a great thing to fit th- to think about is, you know, all these things, like sometimes it can feel oh, as a theology, you know, as a theology professor and things, you know, I, I think, well, why would students want to come to me? You know, they can get all this specialist yeah. knowledge, they yeah. can get all of these jobs. But then when I, you know, we begin, uh, I often use confessions cause I love Augustine and, yeah, and book one. Definitely. And I tell them that, you know, the most important thing that Augustine realizes is that life is a gift. Um, and, and that creation is good. And, you know, and you
1: find the same parallel in Wittgenstein's Tractatus, Mm. which ends with this kind of mystic language, what you cannot speak about, you must pass over in silence, but you read a few paragraphs earlier. And what he's telling us is, uh, not that there's something wrong with this mystical approach to the world, but that very life itself is mystical. The very Mm. fact that there is something instead of nothing isn't rational. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't make sense yeah but it just is and yeah. coming to terms with that it takes a certain outlook and otherwise you become a nihilist yeah. right? and nothing has meaning it's just yeah. random chance and so so for wittgenstein who was a closet mystic just the very <laughs> fact that there is something is 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 a mystical claim
0: yeah well, and he begins the philosophical investigations with a quote from Augustine on yeah. on language. That's right. Um, and so yeah. we, yeah, I mean, you know, he even he loved reading Augustine at least, and he thought he was wrong uh, <laughs> about his about how he understood language. But he, yeah. but he was wrong in a. I was just listening to uh, or reading through a little bit of um, uh, Rowan Williams' uh, his Gifford lectures, yeah. um, and it's about language, um, but this idea that language doesn't uh end the conversation but any statement that we make is essentially like drawing people into further conversation so i think wittgenstein sort of you know he, do- he doesn't think that augustine gets the full picture but it's not because he thinks augustine's stupid yeah um it's because course. he thinks that the conversation needs to keep going no. uh, he's just got us yeah. started
1: and, and augustine's just this font of knowledge uh um uh, you could find Descartes' cogito in, in Augustine's, in one of his dialogues, you know, this this sense of, we, we can't be certain about much of what we know, but but we can be certain that, that we're the ones thinking it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's a starting point of sorts. So, yeah. Yeah
0: yeah well, in the city of God he also uses the phrase uh unless i am deceived uh, i am or yeah. because or because i'm deceived really i am exactly. and so and so he recognizes and you know this uh that that this idea that uh yeah we we know that we're existing and that others are existing um simultaneously yeah. um, because you know it's sort of that community draws us out uh as as in in our own ways like shows us our own uh, humanity in a very real way.
1: But but here's the thing, because on the one hand, as a theology professor, you have a responsibility. Uh, They have a a theology requirement to meet, and you have to make sure that they have a a kind of a grounding core knowledge about theology. Um, So it's not about conversion. It's not about spiritual growth. Nonetheless, I hope that that in the way I teach and offer the material, there is some sense of of edification, of personal growth, of challenging preconceived notions, right? Yeah, um, and and that's why my method in this book is what it is, because in in the end, I think where Christianity has failed, especially certain brands of, of Protestantism, is that they have relied so heavily on reason and argumentation and this idea of truth being universal and absolute and unchanging that it becomes a form of coercion. Mm -hmm. You can't possibly be a rational being and not accept this as true, (laughs) right? In a world where, you know, 1.2 billion people are either Muslim uh, Buddhist or, or nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So well, that
0: and that goes to kind of my first question. So the book is called Theological Fragments, Confessing What We Know and Cannot Know About an Infinite God. And so I think kind of what you've just been saying there and what we've been talking about a lot, one of my questions was, as you get started, you say these are six topics or six myths, ultimately you call them, uh, loci uh, that you wanted to work through. So I asked you where they came from, but it sounds like mostly, you know, they're just coming from, you know, conversations, issues that develop from, uh, your engagement with your students.
1: Exactly. No, that is, that is a big part of it. Um, especially that, that, that struggle with the relationship between faith and science, the chapter entitled the myth of human uniqueness. Right. Yeah. Um, these are students who, uh, in in many ways um, have embraced fully the the notion that that we are just part of this evolutionary process and that while we might be uh, the only species on this planet at this moment that has developed to to a certain point in terms of, you know, self-reflection and cognitive ability, there is nothing – Distinctive and 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 preventing others from from becoming that right mm-hmm. and 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 it's fascinating because to me that that is a critique the church needs to to hear. Back in twenty fifteen, I don't know if you were a student at the time, but uh, Elizabeth Johnson came and gave a talk on her book on Darwin, Ask the Beast, mm-hmm. and her challenge was, you know, Christian theologians and ethicists haven't taken Darwin's challenge seriously enough, and so I tried to do that. Yeah. in the book and and one of the things i don't know if you've watched uh, the news recently there is a an orca a killer whale mm. that has been sinking private yachts <laughs> and they've theorized that it's a form of of revenge um and she's been teaching the young younger ones how to do it and transmitting culture in, in yeah. effect and it's not the first time Orcas have have exhibited behavior like this. Back in 1997, uh, there was a group of people who went whale watching in the Puget Sound in the Pacific Northwest and caught on film a killer whale attacking a great white shark, immobilizing the great white shark, eating its liver, and then leaving the carcass. (laughs) Now, up until then, it had been assumed that the, the white sharks were the apex predator in the ocean. And so one of the people on this boat ride was a scientist, had been studying this particular pod and had never seen this behavior before. And so they they start to document. Long story short, Pacific uh, orcas in the Pacific Northwest are not migratory. Mm. They stay there. Orcas down in Baja, California, near Los Angeles, are mm. When they migrate, they migrate from the lower Baja California out to New Zealand, up to the Pacific Northwest, and back down to Los Angeles. What the scientists discovered was that the hunting technique that the whale in the Pacific Northwest exhibited resembled the hunting techniques of the whales in New Zealand when they were hunting manta rays. Hmm. Manta rays are evolutionarily very close to sharks. Both sharks and manta rays have a behavior uh, that kicks in. Um, They need to move through water constantly to survive. Mm -hmm. If they're immobilized, they fall into a comatose state to reduce the amount of oxygen they need. Hmm. And so whenever they are flipped upside down, that kicks in and they go into the stupor like they're unconscious. Hmm. The killer whales in New Zealand have over years developed this hunting technique, teach it to their young, that, that the best way to, to get a kill a manta ray is to flip it upside down, hold it upside down for several minutes till it drowns. Yeah. And then eat it. Somehow the LA pod whales watched that behavior, mimicked it, with sharks, different waters, different prey, yep. and then taught it to the Pacific Northwest whales. I mean, if that's not language and culture, right, what is? <laughs> and, and it's not genetic. It's not suddenly we have a new gene or genome that then gets passed on. They teach it to their young. Yeah. And and to me, that that is challenging. That is fascinating. And, and so what does it mean that we are both image of God and yet, in the same evolutionary chain as, as the rest of, of all the, you know, animals and organisms. Yeah. And, and so, so I, I, I want to make sure that, that, that when people engage the book, they realize that, that all sides come to, to these issues with, with our own myths and our own meta narratives. And so I'm, I'm asking people to push back and rethink. Um, on the one hand, I don't want to lose the sense of, um, Imago Dei. That's yeah. central to my liberative ethics. Yeah. And in fact, I was surprised. Uh, you know, we did a book launch at St. Louis University on mm-hmm. the book, and we had um, Aristotle, Papa Nicolau, an Orthodox theologian, Scott Paith, uh, a Christian Protestant um, ethicist, uh, Nicole Flores, a Catholic mm-hmm. um, moral theologian. And all three of them, that was the chapter that bothered them the most the myth of human uniqueness and my critique mm-hmm. of this, uh, you know, you know, we're, we're just a little lower than the angels basically. <laughs> right. And, and I didn't think that's where I was going to get a lot of blowback from. And yet that, that, that seemed to have hit a nerve with theologians and Christians.
0: Yeah. So and so, what? What? How does that? Uh, does that make you think like that? You should have been more clear. What is? How do you respond, knowing that a lot of theologians have taken to, uh, a response to that one in particular?
1: Well, what's interesting is, and and, and maybe I'm not a good enough writer, but the point <laughs> I was trying to make is that taking Elizabeth Johnson's challenge seriously mm-hmm. to to engage Darwinism and evolution, the biggest critique and challenge of evolution has been this theological claim about human uniqueness. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do in the chapter is to reclaim the possibility of talking about human uniqueness, not only from a dogmatic point of view as an assertion of of belief, but also in the context of, of the natural sciences, where do Mm -hmm. we find common ground to talk about, um, human uniqueness and and where i have seen that happen is in eco theology and in 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 the scientific community's response to the ecological crisis yeah there's suddenly a realization that we as human beings uh have a capacity to impact the very evolutionary processes that brought us to this point and and so much so that that We're now impacting the evolution of the whole planet and could lead to an environmental catastrophe that at the very least will be the end of the species, right?
0: Well, and in a weird way, I mean, it almost sounds like what makes us unique uh, isn't some grand, uh, like, you know... Super ability to do good, but almost to do harm. <laughs> like, well, see, that's, and, that's, and it. that's it's like a. I mean, at least that's where the argument seems to be leading me.
1: But, but see, that's that's my point. That that if we can, if we and our choices and our actions cause this climate catastrophe, we also have the capacity, both intellectually and I would argue morally, to then reverse it. Yeah, and that's where science and religion have been on the same page. And had yeah. been talking, and and since since probably the the late eighties, early nineties, um, Carl Sagan was no fan of, of Christianity, and yet he reached out to people of faith uh, to to address this very issue, mm-hmm. and to get them to to work together um, to look at the you know consequences of an instrumentalist view of the world. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, well, it, I mean, you know, when I hear these kind of questions and concerns about ecology and stuff, I, 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 you know, I, I feel overwhelmed um, because I know that, you know, supposedly, say I live in St. Louis City. Supposedly, our our recycling sometimes goes to recycling, yeah. sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not really something I can control. Have you ever what,
1: taken a tour of the recycling facility? I have never taken
0: the tour. Uh-uh.
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable how much. That the biggest problem right now is that they have so much recycled material and nothing to do with with it. Hmm. Right? So so it's it's not that we haven't been responsible in doing what we thought we ought to be doing, but the problem is that's not enough. You know, it's not enough to recycle. We need to reduce our consumption and more importantly, stop manufacturing things to be disposable.
0: Well, right. and and what what you know like the thing that we've done as a family in the last couple of years is we we have chickens now, um, mm-hmm. and like I've you know we've learned so much from uh, those chickens. Uh, but one of the things that like we've reduced our waste dramatically just because at, like all paper products, all food leftovers, all of that can go into our compost area where our chickens are, yeah. um, and they eat it, turn it into compost produce eggs uh and then we use their uh their manure you know the other thing like i never realized i grew up in the suburbs Uh, i grew up in chesterfield actually um and but i i didn't realize like you know poop always seemed like a problem Um, but but actually (laughs) it's fertilizer um and, and so you know like these are like ways like so you know with our little kids like we've been able to just as a family like you know show the kids like this is you know this is where our food waste can go and this is how you know poop's not all bad um it actually makes it so (laughs) that the lettuce grows and that feeds us and the chickens and you know like those are like so i i like you know, those kind of solutions where we can sort of, uh, really be in like, be, you know, recognize again, sort of the question of human uniqueness. I'm just a part of the chain. I'm just a part of helping, uh, the chickens use their waste to grow their food, um, and help us get eggs, you know I mean? And, you know, feeling like a part of something rather than the dominant.
1: But what I suggest is that at least for this moment in this time, we are, the only species that has a level of awareness to not only understand these processes, but, but shape them. Mm -hmm. And just as we, through carelessness and greed, shape them for the harm, we can then reverse that. Yeah. And here, and, and. So there's a kind of
0: uniqueness in that almost. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, 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 that's, that's what I tried to do that, that, you know, we see, we as believers see it as as the moral arc of the universe, uh-huh. right? We might not agree with, with a, a, an evolutionary uh, scientist, um, but they will definitely accept that from a cognitive point of view and, and the abilities, we're the one species that can, in fact, do something about this. Yeah. In fact, we're the species that caused it, right? So, um, but but yeah, it's I'm not trying to get them to agree. I'm trying to get them to accept and understand that we can both care about the planet we live on yeah. and its evolution, and understand that that not all Christian theology is dominion theology. To be blunt mm-hmm. about it, right? Yeah. Um, but well, again when... that's that's part of the, the two audiences I'm trying to I, I'm writing to the triumphalist Christian to say hey get off your high horse you're called to, to, to approach these issues with a degree of humility uh, and at the same time those who have completely dismissed Christianity you, you know you, 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 like, like Richard Dawkins, he is the most uninformed critic of Christianity <laughs> on the face of the planet. Sure, he knows next to nothing about Christian history and the development of Christian thought, or I might add, its impact in the development of, of the natural sciences he loves so much. Yeah. Um, so. Well
0: I I think in that uh response there it sounds like you're kind of asking one of one of the questions that one of the things that I was thinking of just looking at the title again the the second part confessing what we yeah. know yes. and cannot know about God and it it just reminded me of the we uh I, I was able to have Hauerwas on the podcast oh, nice. uh, a little while ago and it was fun to get to talk to him but he loves this joke from the Lone Ranger where uh, apparently the Lone Ranger and Tonto were were being uh <laughs> Uh, chased down by the Sioux and Tonto, a Sioux, uh, like, well, uh, the Lone Ranger says, what are we going to do? Um, and Tonto says, what do you mean we, we white man? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah
1: no, I, I get it. And, and there are two answers. The short yeah. one is the press's editorial board came up with the subtitle. <laughs>
0: okay. All I right, simply all right. wanted theological
1: <laughs> fragment. When I was pressed to suggest a subtitle, I said saying what we can about a sometimes hidden God.
0: Okay.
1: But the editorial hive mind came up with the title as it now stands. Okay. But if I have to address who the we is, in the end, the book is addressed to anyone wrestling with the Christian faith. Okay. And so I envision the collective we refers to to them, myself included. Um, And, and this is important, not the institutional church Mm -hmm. and not Christians as, as an entity over against non Christians. Mm-hmm. The we here is anyone struggling with these deep, fundamental, philosophical, and theological questions.
0: Does okay. that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. No, Damn. that's really helpful. Also, I, I when I wrote the question, I'd forgotten that oftentimes editorial boards yeah. choose titles. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> Tell me
1: about it. My first book was a battle. Um, and... I got the title I wanted, but then I didn't get the marketing push that I wanted. They felt like, <laughs> had I gone with a different title, they could have mm. made it part of a series. It could have, you know, but, but to me, they were asking me to, to, it was a book in theology, and they were trying to present it as a book in, in the sociology of religion. Mm. And, 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 and in fact, the first time the press sent it out to be reviewed, it was a, um, a journal of sociology of religion. And mm-hmm. they destroyed me, <laughs> and it was like, well, that's because this you're, you're you're evaluating the book as as the book you would have written, not the book I wrote, right, right. And so that's that's academic publishing. You yeah. know, you got to live with that. Um, but but in the end, um, you know, I I think it's clumsy. I think it covers a lot, but I still think uh, it captures the sense of. Um, we don't know all the answers. Yeah. And so anything that reinforces that, you know, this sense of um, we got to tread lightly precisely because as humans, we we are not in a position to speak with absolute certainty, then I'm all for it. If it works, yeah. good.
0: Yeah. Well, one one other myth, we've talked about a few of them, the myth of human uniqueness. Um, we talked uh, – and one of the other myths here is on um, the myth of free markets. And mm-hmm. so in that place, you kind of draw on your um, – your, I mean kind of your uh, – I don't know. Tr- tradition is not quite the right word, but as a liberation theologian, yeah. uh, you know the liberation tradition well. And it just reminded me uh, that um, – we, you know, we we've been talking about how we teach theology at SLU, but uh, this even this past semester, I had the most pushback uh, from the reading the Exodus narrative, and I I didn't have them read Gustavo Gutierrez directly. Mm-hmm. I had him in mind a little bit, uh, talking about the liberation that God shows for. Um, uh the, 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 how god liberates the israelites um but i noticed that my students uh, were they they were ha- struggling to find and see god as liberative um and so one of the things like i was thinking about this book as trying to engage people nuns other people who are curious maybe are interested in the question of god uh, but maybe don't know you know um or maybe have a different perspective. And so, I don't know. I took that as a challenge and I was like, okay, how am I either not presenting this correctly yeah. uh, or how am I, I don't know. So I, I was looking for your advice. Uh, like what do you, okay. have you, and have you ever, yeah. have you ever encountered this where the students, like mm-hmm. the first thing they thought was, no, God's just being mean to the, the Egyptians. But um, the
1: narrative tells <laughs> us, right? God yeah. hardens Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. You know, God has, has a, an arc in the story where he thinks wants things to end up. And so Pharaoh has to play the bad guy in this. And so God's going to make sure, you know, that Pharaoh's not compassionate and that once Pharaoh gives his word, he's going to go back on his word. And, you know, um, so, yeah, the first time I encountered this was early on. I was an MDiv student at Union Seminary and we had uh, the Native American liberation theologian, Robert Allen Warrior, come talk to us. And, And I was in seminary around 92 he had published a very important article in, in Christianity and in Crisis back in 1989. And it he was the first to problematize this liberative reading of Exodus for me. And the name of the article, you're going to love this, Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians, Deliverance, Conquest, and Liberation Theology Today. Um, now... James Cohen and Gustavo Gutierrez, the two giants of liberation theology, James Cohen, black liberation theology, Gutierrez, Latin American liberation theology. For both of them, the Exodus narrative is, is key and mm-hmm. central. It is God involving God's self in human history through the prophet Moses to liberate an enslaved and exploited people. You can see why, why the descendants of African slaves would embrace that. You can see why a mestizo... Uh, of a people who have been brutalized and exploited for 500 years in Latin America would embrace that. But others like warrior or like the Palestinian priest Naima Teek, or like the Jewish liberation theologian, Mark Ellis have argues that, that there's nothing liberative for them in mm-hmm. the Exodus narrative mm-hmm. um, because they were, um, the people already occupying the promised land who were either victims of, of genocide or, or war, or in other words, they were the problem to be rid of so that God's promises could come true. And so, yeah, early on, I was aware of that. And I, and I, and, and I know you've you've read lightly my, uh, my book, Christian Martyrdom, Political Violence, one of the issues I deal with in that book is this notion that, that the biblical text is, is dense. A shallow reading of the Bible, and that's what most young students bring to it. <laughs> you can recoil from the kind of vindictive and cruel God you encounter there. And yeah. I'll add, uh, not just in the Old Testament. There are things in the New Testament where, where God can be pretty brutal too. Mm-hmm. Um what I tried to argue in that earlier book is that the Bible is a collection of texts that represents many different and sometimes conflicting traditions. Um, and so a patient reading of the biblical text yields a reading of the theistic tradition that doesn't ignore these tensions, but in the end is overwhelmingly erring on the side of God as compassionate and forgiving. Mm. Exodus 34, six or Psalm 103.8. Yeah yeah um and and the reason i argued this is because one of the tensions between christianity and judaism and 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 that gives rise to anti-semitism is this notion that somehow the new testament god is new and improved and supersedes the old testament (laughs) yeah yeah and so what i try to argue is no this is the same god and and revealed through the work of the spirit and through the work of the prophets and it's a consistent message and this is that message um and uh I don't want the students to fall into that same error to look mm. at, at the old Testament vindictive God and then the hippy dippy loving Jesus of the new Testament. <laughs> right. Right. Um, no. Um, and, and so yes, they're right to raise those objections. If you're a person of faith then you need to struggle and have patience, because in the end, I think the narrative will play out. And, and, and for me, um, Abraham Joshua Heschel's book on the prophets. Mm. Um, he's aware of this issue and he wants to argue that, that the tendency has been to look at the Hebrew prophets uh, and their two themes of mitzvah uh, um, and uh, uh, it's commandment and, and justice. What's the... uh, uh, mishpat.
0: Yeah. Mishpat. mishpat. Yeah.
1: And what's the other word I'm, I'm looking for? I'm remembering the Greek. Mm. um the kaiosune mm. but it translates oh it's it's uh, it's yeah righteousness yes um and he says when you interpret them properly when you read them properly it's grace mm-hmm. mm. and so he then points to the story of uh the murder uh, of abel by cain Mm-hmm. You know the first act of homicide in human history, right? Yeah. And um, and in the end, even though in Genesis it tells us that the punishment for murder is death, here we find uh, God being compassionate towards Cain, and not only sparing him, but making it so that others won't punish him mm-hmm. for his for his sin. Mm. And so he wants to argue that at the heart of, of the prophetic tradition, whether in its Christian variant or in its original Hebrew context, is is God is a God of grace mm. and I find that very powerful and very yeah. moving and as a way of overcoming I hate to say it but but Martian yeah right 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 absolutely which we still have live with you know how, you don't know how many Sunday sermons I've endured that are Marcionite <laughs> in their content <laughs> and form.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things I like to do in these interviews is uh, do kind of a um, shifting gears question, uh, okay. and and that's just, so this question could be about anything uh, in your sort of theological journey. It could have to do with writing this book, uh, but I, uh, the question I always ask is, what is one thing you once thought was true and now think is false, or one thing you once thought was false and you now think is true? And feel free to elaborate if you yeah. have an idea of why, uh, but yeah, I just think it's always interesting yeah. to hear how how, you know the theological journey and the theological task often requires us to to change uh, some of the things that we once thought
1: yeah no that's a great question I was um, raised in a, in a very kind of evangelical uh, if not fundamentalist Protestant household um, and there were a lot of tensions there uh, growing up I I'm not some sort of self-proclaimed genius, but even I could see inconsistencies (laughs) at age 10, 11, 12, uh, in in some of the the claims. And and one of the things that that I believed passionately, which I don't anymore, is this idea that salvation is only for those in the church and only for those who've been baptized as Mm. Christians, right? Um, And... I was in the ninth grade. I guess I was around thirteen. Um, I was skipped a year in school, um, and I had this world civ professor, who you know, public school, state school, who, in in his presenting his kind of world cultures class, we studied all the major religions of the world, and I thought it was such a great approach. I thought it's it's so needed in our current context, we, we need to have a civic education that not only gives us the, the, the historical foundation for that freedom of religion in the First Amendment, right, mm-hmm. but then models it by engaging the religions that, that we're likely to encounter. And um, for some reason, you know, we'd studied Judaism and I became obsessed with with uh, orthodox Judaism and has the Hasidim.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And I came home one day and told my mom, I'm, I'm thinking of converting to Judaism. <laughs> Whoa. Telling your fundamentalist evangelical Christian mother that you are thinking of converting to Judaism. Ah, that's, that's going to set off some interesting uh, table. Sure. Time. Sure. <clears throat> but it began my, my, my thinking of, okay, if we worship, well, there's only one God right and we are worshiping the same god then then what does it mean that god is known in different ways right different flavors or languages if you want and and i couldn't accept that it was a flaw in god God, that's perfect right and therefore then it must be god's intention Mm. and so that's what broke me out of that that thinking Mm. Why am I still Christian? Because to me, it's the story that, that brings all the pieces together most cohesively for me. Mm. And, and, I, and I can then make sense of the world. Um, but what I realize is that most of us have invested so much in our conception of God because it, it, it justifies something that's our core and that we want not yeah. necessarily what God wants. And so I was at a retreat at the Montreat center in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, and I encountered had the, the joy, blessing of meeting this, this older African-American woman. And we were discussing uh, issues of race and, and Dr. King's beloved community and, and addressing uh, the historic problems of racism and, and how, at the core was the sense of not recognizing the other as as human being, mm-hmm. and then she says, "Well, that's because you have a piss poor God." <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and so that to me that set off a bell. That was the word, the language I was looking for. We we worship a piss poor God because it's our reflection of who we are, instead yeah. of God revealing God's self to us. And so someday I hope to write a book, maybe cap off my career, reflections <laughs> yeah, <who> well. <laughs> on a piss poor God, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah you could do some Feuerbach and stuff, yeah. you know, that, that sort of, yeah, projection. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a story. I've, I have I I have to say that is, uh you know, that's the most intense response <laughs> I've, I've, I've had. This is good. I like it.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm building up enough capital as an academic that someday I'll be able to get away. <laughs> Stanley Harawas yeah. can get away with a book title like that.
0: That's right. That's I'm right. not there
1: yet. So.
0: <laughs> well, uh, so going back to the book a little bit, uh, a lot of the book is uh, framed around sort of orthopraxis and orthodoxy. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. about sort of, you know, Christians being called to a certain sort of right action or even just people in general reading this book called to right action. And as a way of kind of fleshing out this sort of right action, uh, I loved your story. of uh, I think you you talk about Gustavo Gutierrez um, and telling a student, you know, uh, who wanted to go to Peru uh, that maybe that wasn't the best idea. So I don't know if you'd mind sharing that story (laughs) um, and then, and how that fits into this idea of what does it mean for us to, to live, you know, to live out some of these ideas in the book.
1: No, that's that's great. Um, Gutierrez is wonderful. I, I don't know if you ran into him in your times at, at Princeton Seminary, but he would often come to use the library there. Okay. And the first time I met him was walking from the Dinky. You remember oh, the yeah, Dinky, yeah, the little sure. train, uh, up to Spear Library, which is no longer Spear Library. I don't know what they call it now. But uh, I see this little old man struggling with a suitcase uh, I notice he has a club foot and suddenly it's like, Oh my gosh, that's father Gutierrez. So uh-huh. I introduce myself. I say, where are you headed? Spear library. I'm heading there myself. I take his suitcase and we walk, we start talking. So that was when I was a student uh-huh. years later, I'm, I'm teaching here at SLU and I've been doing the, the paleo program, which is this immersion experience in Latin America. And, uh, I was at a conference at Princeton and he was there and we, we, we sat together for breakfast. And over breakfast, I told him about the Swan student who didn't return from the immersion trip and stayed in Latin America and began to live in this base community, working with the poorest of the poor, becoming the poorest of yeah. the poor, to which he responded. And, and I, I, wish, I wish phones back then were what they are today so I could have <laughs> recorded it. He yeah. says, great. Just what Latin America needs—one more poor person. And I was, I was like, "Whoa, wow!" Let me process yeah. that. Yeah. By the end of breakfast, he says, "Look, you know, no disrespect. I understand youthful zeal and idealism, but but the reality is that, that that's not solidarity. Okay. Solidarity is when you when you acknowledge and recognize your position, your privilege, your power." And then you live in such a way that you use that position and power and wealth to help break down and tear apart the unjust social structures that are causing poverty. right? Mm. So rather than giving up like this romantic St. Francis, all your material (laughs) possessions and living as poor, right? Um, You can live a simple life as all of us try to do and, and keep our consumerism in check and And not continue to to uh, abuse the the planet and its resources, et cetera. Um, But then use our education, then use our positions in society to to, in other words, enact transformative social change, and that's solidarity. Okay. You know, because because in the end, you know, and this manifests itself. I see this all the time. I was just at a conference on Tuesday morning at the Danforth Center in Religion and Politics at Washington University here in St. Louis. And it was on Simone Weil. Yep. And uh, a, a good friend of mine, Elliot Ratzman, was reflecting on the absurdity of upper middle class academics living in solidarity with the poor or the working class. <laughs> and Simone Weil being, you know, the the, the, the model for this, her her working in a Renault auto plant and mm. then contracting tuberculosis right or her living in solidarity with the the Jewish uh, uh, people in the death camps and and eating living eating what they were eating and to the point that it led to an early death mm. right um, and he says there's something ridiculous about that and and he didn't Say it to, to minimize or 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 insult Simone Weil in any way, or this student of mine, right, who who became one, added to the masses of the poor of Latin America, but rather to say that that we need to confront that that absurdity. Right? Mm, mm-hmm. He says that there's something inherently jarring and uh, irreconcilable about someone going to Harvard and then becoming a labor organizer, but but we need that.
2: Right. Mm,
1: yeah. Um, and so he he simply, like Gutierrez, is problematizing what solidarity means. Yeah. Right. And um, how do we live solidar- in solidarity when we don't inhabit the same spaces? Yeah. And here's the thing. In the end, my student wasn't really one of the poor because at any point he could have called mommy and daddy and they would have sent him a ticket and he'd be home. Right. And that's a reality that the people born and raised there don't have. That's right. not a possibility for them. Um, and Gutierrez, you know, um, not as much in his writing, but sometimes you have to read between the lines, but, but he, he does not romanticize, the poor he does not view them as as saints Mm. Um, he he also told me in that same conversation uh, when he was parish priest you know in lima peru he loved his his parishioners but there are some of them he wouldn't want to run into in a dark alley at (laughs) two in the morning right
2: yeah yeah um
1: so there's this we, we we can't we're committed to to orthopraxis we're committed to um Solidarity and, and working together for this common good, but um, we can't ignore certain theological realities. Yeah, namely, um, we're fallen creatures, right? And especially those who are in extreme living conditions might resort to extreme acts. Right. Now he will he will tell you the criminality of. A person who who steals to feed his children is of a different sort than the criminality of the board members of Enron who knowingly uh, defrauded, you know, millions of people and stole and you know, right. But nonetheless, it's still we're still sinners, right? We're right. Still, um, we can't be naive. You you talked about this orthopraxis versus orthodoxy. I don't want to reduce the Christian faith to just orthopraxis. Yeah. And I don't think I do that in the book. What I do say is this is, we're looking at fragments to hold on to. This is one we can't do away with. Okay. If your belief does not lead to, to a certain kind of concrete action as defined by the prophets, right. Then, and by Jesus, then, then, then we've taken something essential away from Christianity. Um, Gutierrez suggests a way forward. I don't know if uh, if you'll agree, but he appreciates (laughs) the prophetic tradition in the Bible that seeks God's justice and advocates on behalf of the victims of tyranny and oppression. But he also recognizes that God is greater than any one conception of God. Mm -hmm. He has a sense of mystery and therefore God transcends all our conceptions of God. Right. Um, so he challenges us to embrace, and you mentioned it earlier, the contemplative versus the active, right? Mm-hmm. He, he uses that same framework in his book on Job. Mm-hmm. And uh, he challenges us to embrace both, to hold them in tension, a prophetic theology that leads to liberative practice, but grounded in, in this contemplation and reflection on the mystery of God. Mm -hmm. And there's this passage, which I find is more powerful in Spanish. I don't like the English translation. I've worked with trying my own translation, but I can't quite capture what the Spanish says in English very well. But he says, justice alone does not have the final say about how we are to speak of, of God. Only when we have come to realize that God's love is freely bestowed Here's that grace again, right? Yeah, yeah. Do we enter fully and definitively into the presence of the God of faith?
2: Mm.
1: Now, in Spanish, it says, uh, Más allá de la justicia. In English, they translate it as, Justice alone does not have the final say. Mm. But what it says in Spanish is that the truth of God. Goes way beyond justice, and I mm. like that sense yeah. that that it's something more, it's bigger. Uh-huh. Whereas this emphasis is reductionist, right? Justice does not have the final say, right? Yeah. Uh, but it already assumes, in some sense, that that justice is the central way, and and yeah. what Gutierrez is actually saying is, yeah, justice is necessary, but God transcends is way beyond that, right? You know, and and I don't want to lose that, and and and. Uh, Along with a liberative uh, political praxis, there is a a spirituality of liberation. Mm. Um, I think you could read the whole of Gutierrez's published works as an unpacking of his first book, A Theology of Liberation. Mm -hmm. In that book, he devotes 12 pages to a spirituality of liberation. (laughs) In 1983 or thereabouts, he published We Drink from Our Own Wells. He took those 12 pages and expanded it into a book length study Mm. on a spirituality of liberation. And and I often get my undergraduate students to read that book. It's challenging. um, It's problematic. um, It presumes a knowledge of Christian monasticism and asceticism that most students don't have. Mm. Um, And so I've shied away from using it. I, I now use his book on Job. Mm -hmm. Because it lets us enter into an immediate conversation about the problem of evil.
2: Yeah, right.
1: And then look at how liberation theology responds to that. And then it brings this both active and contemplative and that we need to nurture the soul and the body. And so students respond better to that. Yeah. But I still think his book on spirituality is well worth wrestling with. Yeah. And it's a line, I believe, from St. Benedict about Mm. drinking from our own wells. Okay.
0: Yeah. Off the, off the, I've I have i have not read that one. I'll have to look that one up.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um well, we're we're kind of we're drawing close to an hour here, so I don't want to okay. take too much of your time. I uh, I may just go to my last question, uh which I I sort of um you, you know, you talk uh, early in the book and then in the end about this difference between Heraclitus and mm, Plato mm-hmm. and Heraclitus and the uh the sort of um The flux Um, and and then Plato having this kind of idea of uh, maybe the roots of our ideas of like divine aseity and and um, and these sorts of things. And so, uh, in your, uh, you mentioned at the end that a friend challenged you on this, um, and kind of sounds like the friend was maybe uh, leaning more towards the the necessity of understanding God as um, immutable, um, and the necessity of understanding God as. and, you know, in a more platonic way. Um, and you said his reaction reflects the human desire for certainty amid the radical plurality of the co- uh, cosmos. But he makes the mistake of assuming God talks is zero some game. Um, and then the next paragraph, I'm not interested in all or another art all or nothing arguments it is ridiculous to assume that sim- simply because i deny the platonic demand for a single universal unchanging truth i am unable to make any true statements especially about god and so it just uh it it just struck me that you know like thinking in with the kind of the christian tradition especially with augustine you know when they read phrases in the Psalms that say like God is a rock, um, it, it does have this sense of the permanence of God, the fixity of God. And that's, you know, the, the idea behind immutability and aseity. Um, and especially for Augustine, in some ways, like what changes his whole life yeah. in the confessions is recognizing that God doesn't change. Um, and, and so he, he now sees that there's something amidst all of what feels like to him, the chaos of life There's something that he can hold on to. Uh,
1: Yeah. No, I agree. I agree entirely. I'm not a fan of nihilism. Okay. (laughs) I believe that God speaks and that we're capable of understanding God. But as the formation of the biblical canon demonstrates, tradition is complex and has many layers and can come to contradict itself. What we are dealing with is a difference between God's revelation and the human interpretation of God's revelation. Yeah, and and so this particular colleague in our department, who shall remain nameless, mm-hmm. um, his concern is that everything would become, uh, like like a feather in the wind, right, with with nowhere to stand firmly yeah. on. Again, not my intention. Okay. Um, I always found it fascinating that Gutierrez embraced Bart and rejected uh, Boltman. Mm. Bultmann, after all, reflects almost a a liberative approach. He begins with the Sitzenleben, the situation Mm -hmm. in life, the human condition, and then reflects theologically from there. So, when interviewed by Robert McAfee Brown, um, Gutierrez was asked, you know, why Bart and not Bultmann? And he said, because Bart preserved for us this idea of having namely through the prophets, a place to stand from which mm-hmm. to then critique oppression, mm. right? It, it, re, it, it revived the word of God as judgment over against a sinful world mm. at a point where Protestant liberalism had equated culture with God and whatever was, was God's will, right? Yeah. And, and so it, it reclaimed the prophets and their judgment for, for Christian activism and Christian theology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I am not saying that we can't speak with certainty about God. What I'm saying is we can't speak with absolute certainty, and that sometimes, even in God's revelation, God only gives us bits, mm. fragments. You know, I, I titled the book Theological Fragments as, as a kind of a tip of the hat to uh, Soren Kierkegaard's philosophical fragments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the Danish is philosophical schmühler, mm-hmm. which translates okay. as philosophical crumbs or philosophical mm. tidbits. Okay. And, and my intention was we looked down on that. And keep in mind, he knew the risk he was taking at a time when Hegel was the pinnacle of philosophy mm. and this overarching comprehensive system of, of human rationality, right? He, he, he publishes a 78-page pamphlet called Philosophical Crumbs. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and it was this this massive critique of Hegel, um, and then he writes a, a two volume postscript, the concluding <laughs> on scientific postscript. Yeah. Um, God does not do theology; humans do theology. God speaks, mm-hmm. and that's unchanging, and that's mm-hmm. eternal. and And I, I argue that that. Through, through a careful reading of, of the the scriptural tradition, and here I include not just the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, but the Quran. in my own work. I've been doing comparative work. Um, the God who speaks is consistent. Mm. When, it, when, it, when I deal with issues of aseity, I deal with it in the way that my former professor, Dan Milori at Princeton did, and I'm sorry you never studied with him. <laughs> yeah. Because for him, it's not a, a metaphysical statement about, god's substance and being mm. it is a moral statement about god's character mm. and why we can trust god is because god in human history has proved reliable and consistent in god's okay. actions right and i think that i think augustine would agree with that <laughs> i don't know if aquinas would but i know <laughs> augustine would uh, and so god is unchanging god is eternal god is reliable what proves ephemeral and unreliable are, are what we humans do with that revelation, because we have this tendency to create God in our own image. Mm-hmm. Even when, when God is very clearly speaking, you know? right. um, Calvin Schrag was a philosopher, um, did a lot of work on religion and science, but, but he argues that interpretation goes all the way down and all the way back. Mm. You find something similar in Gadamer, you find something similar in Richard Rorty, the pragmatist. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to say that it's all interpretation is not to say there's no truth. Mm -hmm. It's to say that that is our human condition. You know, in the end, what Kierkegaard argued is, is that we have to stand on faith Mm -hmm. because we're not going to be able to objectively verify that this is what God said in the end because of the nature of revelation, Mm -hmm. it's given to us in faith and we have to live our lives and carry it on and share it with others in faith.
2: Mm.
1: Does that make sense? And I think what a lot of my Christian colleagues are trying to do, especially those who who place a a high emphasis on, on apologetics is, is do away with that dimension of faith, which is Mm. that from an epistemological perspective, um, we live with uncertainty. Yeah. Now, from a faith perspective, we can have certainty. Mm-hmm. And and so Kierkegaard, uh, uh, you know, talked talked about this in the Philosophical Fragments. Um, and I had I had a note somewhere, but the uh, Kierkegaard made the claim in the Philosophical Fragments: truth is subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Christians, especially evangelical Christians, hear that, and they think cultural relativism, right? Uh He is here emphasizing orthopraxis over orthodoxy. He's recasting Christian theology as a concrete practical discipline and not a theoretical problem. The Mm -hmm. question for the Christian is not, does God exist? The question for the Christian is, how does God want me to live? Mm -hmm. Right? And so... In my previous book, Dogmatics After Babel, I, I developed a very clumsy analogy to explain what Kierkegaard was trying to say. And, and Kierkegaard's notion that Christian truth is subjective, I compared to learning how to ride a bicycle. You're a bicyclist. Oh, yeah. You probably don't remember when you couldn't ride a bicycle. <laughs> That's right. But for some of us, it was a very trying process. Um, he basically said that you could have complete and total objective knowledge of what it takes to ride a bicycle. Had he had the the abilities, he would have said you could even create a a computer simulation that is exact to you know that takes account for for wind speed and and shifting of body weight. You know that, that accounts for every objective muscle movement and sh- change that needs to occur to keep you on that bike and propelling forward. But you still don't know how to ride a bike, right? <laughs> yeah. What does it take? To learn to ride a bike. You get on it, you fall, skin your knee, you curse at it, and you keep at it until you've, what's the word, embodied the act of riding a bicycle. What Kierkegaard is concerned about, and the kind of truth that he says we should all be striving for is that existential reality. We need to embody Christian truth. Mm -hmm. Instead, we, we spend all this time on debate and argumentation, and in the end... Um we might memorize the catechism and the Lord's Prayer and uh you know cite Bible and verse, but if we are not living that, you know, and so 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 it's it's we've lost a sense of theology is spiritual theology. It's it's about the formation of the Christian yeah. in the in the journey of the Christian life. And we've turned it into a theoretical discipline. That's right. Kierkegaard's argument in a yeah. nutshell.
0: Well, I, I appreciate your, uh, your book. Uh, I appreciate the time that you've taken, uh, to prepare for the interview. And I think, uh, you just ended on, uh, the, you know, great place to end, right? That's the call, right? That's, that's that's where we are headed.
1: Um, Chad, this is great. I I haven't had much chance to talk to you since you were my TA. We've, we've both been so busy and you're teaching at two different institutions. So that's gotta be fun. Uh, But it's been great, and I I hope that that, uh, you continue to do this podcast because – I love these. I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time. Oh, good, so, good. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I, I had. I mean, I have to say, you know, i I feel like I've learned. I mean, I learned a lot from reading, but even just talking with you, you know, I hope, I hope for the listeners uh, that this conversation will be, you know, not a replacement for the book, um, but, but just a, a way to sort of uh, flesh out some of the stuff that that was written in really there.
1: Really so. well said. Because I, I hate books on tape or audiobooks. <laughs> Uh-huh. I don't deal well with them. My students love them for some reason. I don't, but I love podcasts because people then take the book which which I've read and then uh-huh. they go off right yeah. and, and 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 to me that's that's the joy because that's what makes a seminar work uh-huh. right because we've all read the book we've all come to it but now we're 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 seeing, oh, I didn't get that from my reading or I didn't, you know. And and so I love that about the podcast. And and I love that it's such a, in terms of resources, such a cheap thing to produce and yet so rich in content. So kudos to you for doing that. Thank you.